I hope that I have said enough in this series so far so that it is clear that when we talk, as we are this morning, about the joyful soul, we are not talking about joyfulness as the only legitimate disposition of the soul in this world of ours. There is a brand of Christianity, and it seems to advocate a sort of don't worry, just be happy type of theology for this present world. But I find that to be experientially disingenuous. It's not what I see as an experience of the world, and it's not what I see pastorally that others experience of this world, unmitigated joy. But more importantly than it being experientially disingenuous, it is, in fact, biblically untenable. The Heidelberg Catechism, the section that we uh, read just a little bit ago, said in linguistic minimalism that this is a sad world. And in the midst of a sad world, people cry. People cry just like they cried in this psalm. But they don't only cry. And we don't only cry. And that's also the idea of the psalmist here, because the grace of God has penetrated, has invaded this sad world. And as water would fill up a dry stream bed because of rain that took place in the mountains, and as it would come down and gush through that stream bed, that's the picture that we have in verse 4, like streams in the Negev, like oxygenated blood that flows through our arteries, through the breathed-out Spirit of God, joy has become if only a trickle, a rivulet in your soul. And it will, at the day of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, become a river that is overflowing in our lives. In the meantime, until that day, what can we understand about the joyful soul in the midst of a sad world. That's what I want to consider from this psalm. I'm not going to give you the points of the sermon in advance. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. And here is the first point. The joyful soul is circumstantially dependent. That sounds odd to us. To say of joy in a Christian context, well, it depends, 
sounds to us, rings to us, that it just might be wrong. It just might be unfaithful to say something like this. But clearly, the psalmist is keenly aware in this psalm that circumstances matter as it relates to joy. So just look at the first two verses again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Just think of what's happening there for a moment. Uh, This psalm could relate, and I think it does, to the time of the restoration of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. Now, it could be some other time of blessing, but for the sake of understanding the psalm and being able to apply it, let's try and use that for a moment to understand what is taking place here. One can easily understand that at the captivity itself, which is to say at the destruction of Jerusalem and the carrying off by Nebuchadnezzar of the people into captivity into Babylon, and then even to a certain extent during the time in Babylon, that it was a time that was characterized by tears, by sadness, by all sorts of fears that were going on in the life of the people. But God, after the appointed time, brought them back. And the picture, the idea that we get here is as God was bringing them back, it was so wonderful It was so amazing that it had a dreamlike quality to it, that in fact the whole thing was laughable. How could it possibly be that we are being brought back to our land, having been for 70 years in captivity over here, now God is bringing us back? And it wasn't something that could be understood by natural circumstances, it was so unbelievable that you could only ascribe credit to God. You couldn't say, well, this is just the natural course of things. Instead, you had to say, God did this. It's amazing in our sight, and we're laughing about it. But the psalmist is recalling that story because his present circumstances are once again, though not particularly known to us, but if we took time to look at the history, we might imagine what those circumstances might be, the the present circumstances are once again dry, barren, unfruitful. The, The present circumstances are tearful again. And so the psalmist brings back this old story so that he can pray, that he can lead others to pray so that he can encourage hope, encourage hope in a future change of present circumstances. God, you did this before. We were in tears. You brought us back. We laughed. We're in tears again. You can restore it, just like those streams in the Negev. You can bring back our joy. A healthy soul responds appropriately to the circumstances in which she finds herself. The Psalms carve out room in our souls for the inevitable vicissitudes and fluctuations 
of circumstances that we will experience in this world, in our lives. And more than simply providing for us space to know how to handle that in our soul, the psalmists are providing us with words, with language, and a particular type of word and language, with poetry, with music. Because sometime when you're in the midst of your tears or when you're in the midst of joy, it's not systematized theology that you need, though you need that. Sometimes it's poetry. And so we're getting the language, the way to deal with these ups and downs that we experience in life. The psalmists reject monolithic rigidity, impenetrability, or indifference to circumstances. They reject it for themselves. They reject it for others. You will not stand like that. I uh, read an article a couple of weeks, uh, two weeks ago or something like that, about a new hospital that is being built in San Francisco. And of course, when you're building buildings in San Francisco, and I suppose hospitals in particular, one of the things you think about are earthquakes and how do we, how do we make this building as well as we can to hopefully survive an earthquake. And this particular technique that they are using is using a viscous material, which is to say, goo. They're, they're injecting, now I don't know the engineering of this, Some of you, you can correct me after the sermon. So whether it's into the joints of the building or into the material of the building itself, they're injecting into it goo. And the idea is, of course, that rigidity doesn't work when the worst things happen. You need to have something that makes it strong and yet allows it to move at exactly the same time. The Psalms are injecting goo into your soul, or at least they're revealing the nature of what faith should be and giving you gooey language to talk about it. And in the midst of the goo, they're calling you to stick to the Lord Jesus Christ. And obvious, uh, oddly enough, goo injected into our souls stabilizes us. A truly joyful soul is a soul that is appropriately, circumstantially dependent. Point two, listen carefully. A joyful soul is also circumstantially independent. Look at your bulletin. Just look at the verse on the front for a moment. I obviously put it on here on purpose. It's the counterpoint. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Though life be as bad as it can be, yet 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Circumstantial independence of joy. Think of a verse that probably or perhaps is coming to your mind now as well. We love it. Paul, Philippians 4. You don't have to turn there right now. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I suggest to you that the two passages that I just read from us, for us from Habakkuk and from Philippians, they seem to run in contradiction to what we have just read and said from Psalm 126. They seem to be saying to us that I'll be joyful no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what is taking place in my life. In fact, they seem to suggest to us that a joyful soul transcends circumstances, even if those circumstances be that of suffering, deprivation, to the extent that this kind of weeping of the psalmist that we see in 126 is suspect. Maybe it's a primitive, maybe it's an underdeveloped faith here. And we have to be honest here. This position, the one that I'm talking about right now, if there's a brand of Christianity that emphasizes the former, or or not even the former, but an always joy, this one is our temptation. This, Reformed people love Habakkuk and love that verse that I quoted from Philippians. We like that. That keeps us right here. And we do. Not just Reformed people like at the other Reformed church down the road, but us, you. We resonate with these things right here. And we cultivate and we praise circumstantial indifference. And we call it faith. And sometimes, as much as we may be suspicious of tears, we are equally suspicious of joy. We're not quite sure what is going on with joy. We think We should serve. We should come to a work day at the church because you should come to a work day at the church. Period. You work because the deacons called us to work, and so you come to work and you do your work, and that's it. That seems to us faithful. And we suspect joy. We suspect joy because joy is a lot like pleasure. And pleasure sounds a lot like hedonism. And we kind of look at that and go, wait a minute. If I'm having too much fun, if I'm having too much joy, perhaps 
I'm not denying myself enough because I ought to be taking up the cross and following Jesus. Or perhaps this thing, whatever it is that I'm doing that I'm getting so much joy out of, has in fact risen up in my life to be something that I'm actually got it in the wrong place in my life. We know this. We don't just know this intellectually. We know that this happens in our hearts. We've watched it take place in our lives, and, and we've gotten to the point where we go, wait, 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 I have to check this. I've gotten this out of balance. And so we suspect joy because we've seen its abuse, not just in the world, in our lives. We've seen the abuse of joy. So we kind of put it down and say, wait, contentment is a better word than joy. Let's just be content. The problem is that Psalm 126 is actually in the Bible. And the psalmist wants a joyful soul. There's just no other way around it. You can't, you can't read it some other way. He wants a joyful soul. How do we resolve this apparent dichotomy between a joy that is dependent and a joy that is independent of circumstances? Here's the answer, and there is an answer. Paul and Habakkuk are not circumstantially indifferent. Instead, they are aware of broader circumstances. Their present story, whatever it is they are presently experiencing, they are able to see that within the context of a bigger story. Like our psalmist, they can look backward and forward and see that this now that I'm experiencing is not all there is. Now is not all. Now is powerful. Now will affect our souls, and now ought to affect our souls. Now is powerful, but now is not omnipotent in determining the state of our souls. Jesus at a moment in time, endured the cross, all of it, the shame, the suffering, the pain, body and soul. He, enjoyed, he endured the cross in a now, agonizing. There's nothing that's indifferent in him about the cross. He doesn't go to the cross by saying, well, it's the next job I got to do. I had to be in this city yesterday, I had to be in this city today, I have to go to the cross tomorrow, resurrection, third day, everything on schedule. He was not indifferent to it. He suffered on the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. Hebrews 12. He did it for joy. It wasn't pleasant. It was sowing in tears. But he did it for the sake of joy. And his story becomes our story. So that's why, for example, we opened up with a call to worship from Isaiah chapter 12 today. It's the big story. You were angry with me, but your anger has turned away and you have comforted me, and therefore we, the people of God who have experienced that great turning, anger away, kindness given. We sing. It's the big story of which any 
circumstances are but a portion. Joy is set before us as the people of God. Your soul was not created to be indifferent to joy. It was created to be full of joy. That is the brilliance of Westminster One. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Imagine that statement without enjoy Him. Imagine how that could be misunderstood. But it doesn't say that. And to enjoy Him forever. In Jesus, your story in this sad world your story has an absurdly and almost unbelievably happy ending. When the Bible tells us to rejoice in suffering or to give thanks in all circumstances, it is not in any way trying to flatten earthly experience as if somehow the birth of, the ch of a child is the same as the loss of a child. Therefore, give thanks in all circumstances. It is not flattening earthly experience. It is telling you to look back on what Jesus has done and realize that now, through this pain, through this deprivation, desperation, what is happening is that God is cutting canals into your heart that will overflow with water at the return of Jesus Christ. Water of joy. As overwhelming, and if you've experienced death recently, as overwhelming as death seems, or grief, or pain, or loneliness, or rejection, as overwhelming as abuse may seem in this world, they themselves have been and will be overwhelmed. The redeemed of the Lord shall return. And when they come into Zion, they will come singing and joy. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee, shall flee away. You Stoics, you're going to be happy, like it or not. In the meantime, here's what we've got, each of us. We have a precious, tender, young, joyful soul. Here's what we can say to that soul this week. In the first place, soul of mine, be moved. The psalmist 
is not asking us to have a brittle, unmoved soul, but instead is saying to us, you, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, cry with those who are crying, and laugh out loud with those who are laughing out loud. Gooey and sticky grace and faith has been injected into your soul. Your soul may be tender, but it can move. It can move back and forth and not get broken. As far as I know, they don't inject whipped cream into buildings to make them stable because that just gets splattered, right? Don't let your soul be undone, splattered, but with a sticky, viscous goo, it can move. Let it move. So be moved, soul. Second point, there's four of these. Second, be immovable my soul, your life, my life, your soul, my soul, is hid with Christ in God. It is secure. It is tethered. Your present sorrows, your present difficulties, the present loss that you are experiencing, it is part of the larger story of Jesus Christ. We study this word, we read this word. Is it irrelevant to the stuff that we go through day in, day out? No, because as we do this, as we look at this word, as we saturate with ourselves with this word, we find our story to be part of this story, this living and active story. Mine tucks right in here, yours tucks right in here. The unfolding purposes of God. And that, for your soul, is firm footing, it's deep rooting, it's anchoring, and it provides stability and immovability, even joy, at least a little bit, through life's tempests. Be moved, be immovable. Third, be patient. We read from James today. Take that passage from James this week and read it to your fledgling sapling of a soul. Turn to your soul and say, little soul of mine, be patient. You're not yet what you will be You are under construction, and you are under construction in the midst of a sad world. Don't grumble. Be patient, O my soul, until your Jesus comes. Be moved. Be immovable. Be patient. And finally, may your fledgling, joyful soul abound in the work of the Lord. I'm dovetailing in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, I believe it is, if you want to look that up later. 
May you abound in the work of the Lord. In Psalm 126, tearful believers sow. They go out, they do work in a sad world. They sow in tears. The labor of your soul is not in vain. Serving at the church is not in vain. It's not vain to wipe the dust off of those spindles, even though the dust will be back there in two weeks. In the Lord, your work is not in vain. It is not vain to do the laundry. It is not vain to mow the grass, to go to the office. It is not vain to do your homework. It is not vain to practice your instrument. It is not vain to labor in your family. It is not vain to labor to tell another person about Jesus. It is not vain for you to invite someone to church. It is not vain for you to suffer or to endure. Your labor is not in vain. It's hard, but it is not in vain, and you will reap what you sow if you do not lose heart. Because Jesus has secured your reward, your inheritance, and your harvest. Close with verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him.